and welcome to another episode of the Obey Podcast. So over the last few weeks, I've been staying up on the news, but I haven't had a lot of time to record. But this week, I'm looking to bounce back from my from my slump and then really get into the weeds on some issues that I've been piling up information on, and I've been trying to synthesize it for a while now. So the, the first endeavor I'm going to go on is kind of trying to break down the minimum wage issue that people have been talking about over the last two weeks. Um, so to, to, to some extent, I wanted to, to discuss it because it was a hot issue. Um, if you're not aware, in the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that Joe Biden um, what was pushing, there was a, originally supposed to be a, a, a part that would raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour over the next four years. It looks like that this isn't going to make it in the final bill. At this moment, the final bill still hasn't been passed yet. But well, what ended up happening was the uh, parliamentarian ruled that the uh, that, that that Congress can't pass that part of the legislation if they decide to pass the bill through reconciliation. Um, lo- long story short, if they wanted to raise the minimum wage, because of what the par- parliamentarian decided, they would need 60 votes, but they are only going to have 50 votes tops. Um, I guess Nancy Pelosi still wants to leave this part of the bill in it when she passes it in the House and then sends it over to the, the, the Senate. Um, but it doesn't look like that's going to fly there. So there might be a showdown. This might end up making it through, but it doesn't look like it's going to be. But with all that said, the $15 an hour issue has been a topic for at least the last four or five years. And it's not going away anytime soon, especially with Biden as president. And um, at the the least, it's going to be something they run on in the midterms and try to push in, uh, in 2022. So it's worth talking about now since we have a lot of uh, stuff at our disposal. Um, so I'm going to go through a lot of d- different news stories that I've kind of no- noted, read, highlighted some interesting information, and I think it shows a lot of the arguments that are being made right now about the minimum wage, and it, it, raise, it talks about a lot of my uh, concerns, and I'll bring up some other thoughts I have. Um, so I guess we should start with talking about something that's more pro $15 an hour minimum wage, so we have a frame of reference to work with. So in an uh, addition of Newsweek I have, let's see... This is in real time. I get to scramble for it. Okay, so this is from the February February 8th edition of Bloomberg Business Week, not Newsweek. I apologize. Um, There's an article written by an economist, Dubé, and he's done a lot of research on the minimum wage. And um, to to, to summarize his piece in here, it it would lower poverty in the United States if we increase the minimum wage. And he isn't convinced that there'd be significant reductions in employment. So one of the arguments that I'm going to talk about a lot is the argument about jobs being lost and um, the, the, the issues in terms of hiring people if there's going to be a higher minimum wage. That, that's a lot of the criticism. He, he pretty much cites empirical studies to say that in a lot of small minimum wage increases next to counties that didn't have increases, there wasn't notable job loss. Um he does cite concerns about areas that have significantly lower minimum wages than the federal minimum wage. So 
in places like Alabama, where the minimum wage is seven twenty-five, he has some concerns about that going to fifteen dollars an hour. But overall, he doesn't see this being a problem if it's phased in over four years. There, there was another, um, there was another argument in favor of the fifteen-dollar minimum wage going around recently, and I, I apologize for all the paper shuffling. Um, so, so this was by Noah Smith. Um, he's, uh, I, I guess he's an economist. He's definitely a journalist. He's a blue check that I've seen on Twitter before. And he had a piece on Substack all, Substack all about raising the minimum wage. And he um, cites the same work that that Bloomberg Businessweek piece cites. And he pretty much is saying that you shouldn't assume that jobs will be lost because in some places the, um, the, 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 the current cost of labor isn't efficient. And um, certain companies do have the flexibility to absorb that cost if the wage floor is artificially pushed up. And if that is the case, then since there will be more spending power for people who are lower income, that might actually end up creating jobs. Um, That's an argument he kind of leans into. And he kind of comes to the same conclusion, though, that he doesn't find the $15 minimum wage that risky. And in some places, it'll be much more beneficial. There are some places that... um, like, like, once again, Alabama, where it might be more of a problem, but he thinks over four years, especially considering that, considering how economic growth should happen over four years, this shouldn't end up being that big of an issue. Okay, so let's talk about some of the other pieces that definitely contrast with this one. Because one of the reoccurring issues we see is um, a lot of people are more concerned about um, the, the increase in wages and what that will do to employment. So I, I think a good example to start is the, it's, it's a piece by William, it's by Will McGurn in the Wall Street Journal. It's an op-ed uh, article from, if I can find the date, I think that would be helpful for you folks if you want to try to tag along, although I'm not seeing the date immediately, so you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> this is the fun of uh, do, doing one recording and not doing any heavy editing, as you can tell from all the stuttering and the paper wrestling. But, but I think that adds to the appeal. So, um, so I, ho- I, hope, I hope you enjoy it. Um, okay, so, so Will, Will McGurn wrote The Human Cost of, of a Minimum Wage. And he gives an example of something that happened earlier this year where Long Beach, California adopted an ordinance requiring large grocery store chains to pay employees an extra $4 an hour. The idea was to reward them for the risks they took by doing their jobs amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And then I'm going to quote him here. It didn't turn out that that way. In response to the ordinance, Kroger Co. announced it would close two Long Beach supermarkets. Once again, workers were sacrificed to greed. As local union leader John Grant told the Washington Post, it's reckless, cap- it's reckless capitalism run amok. But was it? So then he goes on to say, thanks to their intervention, instead of finding an extra $4 an hour in their paychecks, nearly 200 grocery, um, nearly 200 grocery workers will now have no paychecks at all unless they're transferred to another store or find another job. Um, so when it, when it comes down to it, a lot of industries, especially ones that are the, the, the kind that have been under a lot of stress during the coronavirus pandemic, so think of grocery stores and restaurants, a lot of those are already low-margin industries, and now they're pretty much putting those companies in the spot where all their labor would increase by, by several dollars an hour, everybody on their staff. Um, so as you can see, Kroger shut down two of their stores because they would lose money if they kept them open. So it's irresponsible for them to just keep things open that are constantly losing money. Um, and then he goes on to, he he references an older piece in the New York times from the eighties that, that, that ended up saying, um, 
that those at greatest risk from a higher minimum wage would be young, poor workers who already face formidable barriers to getting and keeping jobs. It's true that the cost of raising the minimum wages vary depending on conditions, and the cost won't always translate directly into dramatic job losses. There are many ways businesses can absorb these costs by raising prices on their consumers, by replacing employees with man by by replacing employees with machines or by reducing hours, which in some cases would mean that workers make more per hour but less each week. So he, he's raising a few concerns, and he's citing a pretty recent example, and I do remember when that was in the news not too long ago, that these people who were supposed to get what is essentially hazard pay ended up just losing their jobs completely. So a lot of these industries are, are pretty fragile. Okay, um, I, I, I think I have a lot that I want to hit on, but I think it goes... Um, it kind of strings along in a somewhat nice way. So I, I think from that, I want to talk about this piece in the Wall Street Journal from, I, I guess this was just a few days ago on Friday, February 26th. So it, it's this article called, it's called Much at Stake for Tipped Workers Owners. So what, what this talks about is the other sneaky part of this minimum wage provision is it would eliminate the tipped wage for workers. So if you're not familiar with it, that there are certain provisions that make it so servers in a lot of states and jurisdictions don't have to get paid whatever the minimum wage is in that county. So if you were in Philadelphia and the, and the minimum wage is $7.25, the server's minimum wage might be $2.25. So the, the server would only get paid $2.25 from their restaurant. On the off chance that they didn't make enough in tips to meet the standard minimum wage, the restaurant was liable to make those even. But a lot of these workers made most of their monies from tips. Um, so, they, so, so, this, so this is a really interesting article because it kind of, kind of brings up a whole... A whole, a whole slew of issues that uh, come into play when you talk about re when you talk about restaurants. Um, so the, the, there was a worker they quoted in here who essentially says that it seem he says it's insane that our entire industry's pay structure is based on customers giving us extra money, so our employers don't even pay us the legal minimum. Um, so so that was the direct quote from Hayden Smith, a 29 year old server in Nashville. So he and he was he, he was mentioning that his pay is consistent, um, inconsistent because some nights he'll make a lot more than, than other days, and this is kind of language that I would I, I I often see people who consider themselves on the left kind of put pushing. It's like okay, well you really have the customers subsidizing the, the the pay, the employers aren't paying anything, and all these workers are in a kind of sketchy situation. Um, I'm not going to even begin to touch the, the basic level of tipped wages and economics because tipping is one of the most interesting things to a lot of economists and there's like an endless amount of studies on them that, that talk about the, the, the power of tips in terms of an incentive mechanism or is it even useful because most people just tip 15 or 20 percent. Um, and, and then there are all these things that go into the tipped wage that, that make it very, very confounding. But, but you have one side of the story saying, hey, I would probably rather have a higher minimum wage because it's more consistent, yada, yada, yada. But then you have another person quoted who is an older server. It's Jacqueline Pigeon, 46, and she's a server at a steak and seafood restaurant in um, South Carolina. And she opposes the elimination of the tipped wages because she said she regularly earns around $40 an hour in tips and works about 30 hours a week. And she worries a wage increase could cause the restaurant where she works to close. Um, and she expects that she'd actually make less if the, those regulation changes uh, came into play because she's worried that customers, knowing that she makes a base of $15 an hour, 
won't actually tip her very highly. And, and, and this is something as a personal anecdote. I, when I was in high school, I had a buddy who, um, who, who was in a different state. He was in Albuquerque. And when he was a server, he had the server's wage. And then when he came back to visit us in California, he realized, oh, all the servers here, they, they, they don't have that um, obscenely low tip, or they, they don't have the obscenely low server's wage. So all of them are already making an extra $7 an hour over what he would make as a server. So he, he didn't feel like, um, he, he didn't feel as, I, I guess, uh, compelled to tip them as highly. He still did, but he was like, he, 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 he felt less obligated and it was still the, the basic instinct to tip um, is still there. But if you're very aware that they're already making the minimum wage, you're probably less likely to tip them as much as you might if you know they aren't, they, they aren't really making any money otherwise. So you have two workers who are in the same industry generally making the, the, the same servers a tip, but each of them have opposing views on the issues. I think this is important to recognize just because the, the people who I cited in favor of the minimum wage increase pretty much cite on average effects minimum wage increases over economic studies. But what they don't realize is that even if on average effects are positive in some jurisdictions, they still will disenfranchise a lot of people. And it's still a situation where the government is picking winners and losers. And there are people who are going to be deeply, deeply screwed over by this policy. So even and, and, and I'm not even saying that I agree with the conclusions of those first two people, but I'm saying if you did accept the, the, the starting point of on average it's better, you still have to accept all the people it's disenfranchising like, like it would the, 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 the server that thinks their tip's going to go down and their restaurant might do worse because it might not be able to afford those costs. Um, so it, it should, uh, that's, that's another thing to, to consider. Um, okay, so the other thing I want to bring up and I, I think this confounds the situation a little bit more, is this article from the Wall Street Journal called CFOs Lay Plans for Higher Minimum Wage. I think this was the rare um, interesting piece in the business section as opposed to the main section of the newspaper. Um, this is from the Saturday-Sunday issue, February 13th and 14th. Okay, so I, I wanted to cite a few things because th this was... Um, quoting people who run businesses and what they think they'll do, and it was re referencing some larger companies and what they'll do. Um, okay, so so first I'll start with the, I guess, the automation angle, because this is one of the talking points you'll hear a lot of conservatives, um, d d a lot of conservatives will default to, if you if you make workers at McDonald's paid $15 an hour, you're really just going to see a lot more touch screens. You're not going to have anybody working in the cash register, all those people, they'll only hire people for the bag, they'll, they'll get a touch screen to do it. So, to, to, to keep in line with that that part to some extent, um, five below, which is like a it's almost like a dollar store type type, type store. Um, they they have them in Philadelphia, and I think it's I think it it might not be Philadelphia exclusive, but it is a um, that's kind of store it is. It's it's like a dollar store. They they talked to the CFO Ken Bull on February third, and he said that he he would expect to see an increase in self checkout station as opposed to traditional checkouts. Um, allowing for more transactions to be completed, but keeping labor prices lower. And this is a company that employs more than 15,000 people. An increase in the minimum wage could be at the same time a benefit for his company, though, because if there's more consumer spending and lower income people, he might see a boom. But with that said, if they, they still would want to keep the labor costs down because now they have, you know, the, the, the cost of the technology would then become cheaper than the cost of labor. Um, and then another company, which was... Uh, 
which was Daddy's Burger Bar. Yeah, I, I remember saying this name earlier. Um, he, he mentioned investing in technology such as handheld devices that would allow customers to place their own orders and pay their own checks without any staff involved. So th there are kind of creative ways that a lot of places have already done. Um, I mean, if you've been to a Chili's in the last maybe five to seven years, I think they have these... Um, they have little touch screens that you can check out on. So there are things like that that they can innovate to minimize labor. And it's not just like, oh, this will completely eliminate servers. But if it keeps a restaurant from employing two servers an hour at their peak time, then that company knows that they're saving hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And all they have to do is an upfront investment with maybe smaller investments over time. So you're going to see ways where they can work around the higher labor costs because now it's economically efficient to hire less people and just to replace them with something else. So the automation point isn't something that I would I would say is the number one concern, but you have to you have to remember if you can have something else do the job for cheaper and that, that could be a touch screen, then it's going to it's going to eventually over time in the situations where it's available phase out the employees. Um, that that's just reality if, if a place is trying to make more money. So if, if, it's, if it's cheaper, then that's what they'll do. Now, a few other things I wanted to hit on was I wanted to hit on Walmart and Starbucks both saying they plan to increase their hourly wages to $15 for a lot of their workers already. Um, and, and I point to this because this is the whole thing with um, how Amazon will take out a full-page ad at the back of the Wall Street Journal just so they can um, say that they're, they, so, so, so they can lobby for a $15 minimum wage. And I think th this is what should really be ringing the alarm bells for the left. Um, because if you think about these big stores competition, it's a lot of smaller businesses. So if Walmart's the only place in town to shop for good prices, then you're going to go there. And the, those places make their money off the, these low margin um, transactions, but they do a ton of them. Now, a lot of places that are smaller businesses inherently do a lot less volume, and they usually make a lot, a lot lower profits. So if you can force the labor cost of all of your smaller competitors up, then it's going to be much harder to be a viable business if you're competing in the consumer retail sector. A lot of small businesses are already seen generally, like the general opinion of a lot of small businesses is that they're somewhat quaint and generally more expensive, but people like going to them for whatever reason. Um, because maybe the goods are better, maybe the, it's more personable. But all of that is going to get driven up because... They have to pay any extra staff members they have around that maybe like work, work the floor or their cashiers. They have to pay all those people more and make up that margin. So all these things are already seen as not necessarily price competitive are only going to be they're only going to be worse off. And these businesses are these businesses are already seen, especially in the post-COVID world. They're, they're, they're seeing worse margins. And the whole critique of entering this COVID world where you could only go to the grocery store and Walmart, it, it meant, oh, look, Walmart's getting all the business, all, all the business that small businesses can't get because they're not allowed to open. So this last year's already been like hugely detrimental on this whole sector of businesses. And they're, they're going to be the ones that are most hard hit, which is why the big box stores are the ones lobbying for the same increase that the left is, is for. So, so, so there, there, there's that concern. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Let, let me get a couple more things together. I, I have a few more points I want to make. Um, I, I know I've already hit on a lot of the general issues. I, I think the next one I wanted to touch on, um, the, 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 so, okay. So the congressional budget office is supposed to be like a nonpartisan, um, 
it's it's a nonpartisan government office that scores policies to kind of give a an unbiased assessment of economic plans. And we, we, we could squabble over certain assumptions they make because there have been some things that come out of the CBO that I've been kind of critical of. But a lot of times they're, they're, they're kind of saying basic conventional wisdom that is, is it's generally pretty accurate. Okay, so, so I wanted to get into some reporting. Okay, here's the piece. It's reality check for a $15 minimum wage. This was written by the editorial board on February 9th. So... Okay, so it says phasing in this mandatory wage floor by 2025, according to the CBO's new average estimate, would result in a loss of 1.4 million jobs. The adult workers would be disproportionately younger and less educated, and CBO projects that half of them would drop out of the labor force. Um, it goes on to say the federal budget deficit through 2031 would increase $54 billion um, as the government spent more on unemployment benefits and health care programs. Though wage employees lucky enough to keep their jobs would get a raise, uh, yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the whole takeaway from this CBO study and the, and the wall street journal does a good job reporting on this too. They had, they had a piece also in that February 9th paper where, where, where they really broke it down in detail. Um, they, they also go on to say, well, many Americans would see raises. The analysis showed a minimum wage increase would cause prices to rise the federal budget deficit to widen and overall economic output to slightly decrease over the next decade. Um, okay. So, yeah, okay. Um, I, 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 I'll, I'll pause a minute before I talk about inflation, but the first thing I just want to address is, even though up to 27 million people could get a raise, 1.4 million people it would lose their job, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Now, another article by J Jason Riley in the opinion pages ends up talking about how that, that doesn't really account for all the jobs that aren't created. That, that, that would be my bigger concern, because people don't usually go, oh, we're going to have to pay you more in the next four years, you're fired. I, I, I do buy into a lot of Keynesian assumptions about wages being relatively sticky, but the issue, I think, is when it comes to hiring. And th this has been looked at a lot when it comes to places like France and Europe, where there are like higher worker protection standards. So if it's, if it's harder to fire people, you have to pay more for in terms of benefits, and you have to pay higher wages then you're slower to hire people. And and, the, and if you're hiring into a union, like a, a company that's dominated by union, you're also more hesitant to hire people because you know that if they stick around for six months, all of a sudden they're kind of exempt from any strict um, treatment. So you don't want to hire somebody you think is going to be a problem two years down the road, but then you can't fire them. So that, that's something that's also considered, and it leads to slower hiring and less hiring because people cost more um, to, to, to deal with, and you can't afford to fire anybody, so it's less flexible. Um, okay, so, so that's the first thing I want to talk about. Um, then they, they, they talk about inflation a little bit. The, 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 it's really just the general idea here is in certain industries, like specifically restaurants, if you go to McDonald's, the price you're paying is really competitive price, and they make very, very low margins. So the amount you're paying is very close to zero economic profit for McDonald's. Um, the big driver of expenses at McDonald's is labor and then the food inputs, which the food inputs, uh, they, they presumably buy in bulk at a really low price, which is why it's lower quality than going to, um, you know, a nicer restaurant. So when you unilaterally raise the labor cost of McDonald's, you're going to raise the cost of all the items there. If you can imagine in your head a busy McDonald's with six people working in the back, 
then and it's in a place like Pennsylvania or Alabama, well, now those places cost $50 more an hour to run. If they're 24-7, you know, that's $1,200 more a day times 30 days a month. So it ends up, you know, it adds up. And it's not like thousands of dollars is negligible just because um, McDonald's is a multinational conglomerate, but they're, they're a franchise. They're, they're essentially a bunch of small businesses that all act the same way. So this is like thousands of dollars per the owner per um, month. And, you know, I, I'm sure ideally in a leftist mind, you, you could just take the $5,000 from that owner because if, if it's a successful McDonald's, they're making probably tens of thousands of dollars a month. But what they're going to end up doing is they're going to want to be competitive in terms of um, they, they want to make competitive economic profit. And they're going to raise those prices in a way that's probably proportional to the labor costs. And other fast food places will probably do the same so they won't lose any business because their competitors are going to be the same. So even if you think the price raised too much, it's like, well, you your, your real competition is against eating at home. And if everything raises 10% at McDonald's, then it's, you know, something going from a dollar to a dollar twenty or four dollars to four fifty. So it's not huge increases, but it's it's notable. You know, it's like ten percent increases. And and that's what happened if labor went up by, you know, thirty, forty percent in a place. So I, I, I guess I'm I'm pontificating on this hypothetical because it's just like a it's a specific example of a specific industry where most of their costs come from labor. And since most of their costs come from labor, it's going to be price sensitive. And then you also have, in general, people who make less income generally eat more at places like fast food places. Those people have more disposable income. So hypothetically, there will be more demand for those things that might drive up the price even more. Um, so that, that's part of what they get there. Um, a lot of businesses, especially restaurants, are probably going to raise prices, especially if, um, especially well, and then this ties back into the tips, uh, wait, wait, the, the, it ties back into the server's wages too. Okay. So I spit all that out there. The, the other thing that that article from the wall street journal hit on was the, the increase in the deficit. Um, so something that people probably wouldn't think about is that there are a lot of healthcare workers that do things that are covered by Medicare and Medicaid. And those, some of those people make under $15 an hour. So if their wages get pushed up, it'll actually, um, lead to increases in costs of those programs um, for, for the federal government. So even if there are people who argue there are savings in terms of like, oh, well, we'll give out less food stamps if there are more people who are on food stamps that now make enough money to not qualify. Well, it's actually more than, um, it's actually costs more for the government in general because of Medicare and Medicaid. So it isn't even offset by those potential decreases. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I know that's a lot. Um, the last couple of things. There's this article I mentioned before by Jason Riley. It's called the minimum the minimum wage is racially discriminatory roots. Um, so I, I point out part of this just because I need to recognize the the boomer con uh, argument that they like to make the the whole idea that the left is the real racist. So I wanted to at least acknowledge that. So so the, this piece reiterates that 1.4 million jobs um, would vanish according to the CBO, and a lot of these people are going to be lower income and low, and low skill. He says, and I quote, low income minorities stand to lose the most from lifting the wage floor because they are overrepresented among less skilled and less experienced workers. Labor economists William Evan and David McPherson's study of the impact of the state minimum wage mandates in 2007 to 2009 found that they cost younger blacks more jobs than the Great Recession did. This is exactly what the early 20th century minimum wage proponents were hoping these laws would do, keeping black workers from competing for jobs. And then he kind of he talks about the history of some of these Jim Crow um, related policies that were in 
and and um, you know policies that are adjacent to that, and how they were actually designed to keep low um, skill black workers from competing with union labor. So he says the federal government got involved in setting wage levels in the 1930s and did so at the urging of unions that excluded blacks as members. During debates in Congress, lawmakers complained openly about the superabundance and large aggregation of Negro labor and cited complaints by whites of black Southerners moving north to take jobs. So he kind of is saying that everything was union, union cronyism to the start, and this was meant to be a racist policy. But... I think the more important thing for today, instead of saying, well, left's the real racist, this is how you're going to hurt um, urban inner city people even more. I think the more important thing to just point out is it's a regressive policy. And you don't even have to make it about race. I, I really don't like when people make things about race for, for, for seemingly no reason when you can just talk about um, a, a different group that is actually more inclusive. And the inclusive group, I'd say, is the lowest skilled and the lowest educated of the people who work at a minimum wage level. Um so, so also to cite this Jason Riley bit, because it's actually important, I glossed over it. He says, a 2014 analysis by economists Joseph Sitt, Sabia, and Richard Burkhauser found that the vast majority of workers who would benefit from minimum wage increased lives for from minimum wage increased life in non-poor households. According to Mr. Sabia, only 13% of workers who would be affected live in poor households, while nearly two-thirds live in households with incomes over twice the poverty line, and over 40% live in households with incomes over three times the poverty line. And then he says, most workers who earn minimum wages are not a family sole breadwinner. They tend to be teenagers living at home or senior citizens working part-time to stay busy. According to Mr. Sabia, single mothers made up less than 5% of those who would potentially benefit from a minimum wage hike. Okay, so the, so the people who are really getting screwed here are people who don't have a lot of work experience and people who don't have good education. So you have to think of it as not that all the minimum wage people would get a raise. You have to think of it as the people who are the lowest skilled at the job um, lose their jobs and everybody else gets a minimum wage increase. So, um, for, for example, you could probably reflect on, um, people who work in almost more janitorial basis at fast food places. Maybe, maybe there are some people that you've seen working who you're surprised they could even have a job. Um, and that, that's not to, to disparage them. It's just some people have different capacity levels than other people. And some, some people seem like they, they would struggle to hold a job. And those people are the people who are pretty much completely priced out of work if it's $15 an hour. Because at $15 an hour, you have to ask people to produce $15 worth of output. And if you're trying to employ some people to work at places, and you, um, I, I think the hypothetical I would give, which may, may, maybe it's not the best technical hypothetical because because they do have regulations about how often you have to clean bathrooms at a restaurant. But, but in my mind, I, I like to um, imagine the, the hypothetical of we, we could have one more employee around and then we can clean the bathrooms every 45 minutes instead of every hour and a half. So we can clean the bathrooms twice as often because he'll check those and he'll also help bus tables. And at 7.25 an hour, you can imagine that person could be valuable because it's something that the servers could do if they're pushed to do it or it's something that you could just um, do at a slightly lower frequency, and it wouldn't necessarily hurt your business, and it would make your you would make your business look better. But now, if you double the price of that labor, you have now re reached a point where they, they don't produce fifteen dollars worth of output. So if you drive up the labor cost artificially that high, there are certain tasks at certain rates that aren't worth doing. Um, the the other example, um, and I think this was specifically a example we talked about in my in my business when I went to business school. Wow, I, I did not mean for that to sound arrogant in any way. Um, it, it, but it was it was a mostly um, 
not not very helpful gen ed class but, but but one thing we did look at was frequency of lines and labor costs so so the idea that it's like the difference between having 10 and 15 people in a call center well the, the thing is why are people calling into your call center probably to cancel services or because they have a problem well if somebody has a problem and you don't answer their call in a certain amount of time if you put them on a four-hour hold they'll hang up they'll cancel their service online and your company loses money but if you have too many people at the call center, then you might be giving them great service quickly, but you're actually over-employing people because people could act, would actually be willing to wait like 15 minutes without it being a big deal. So if you have an abundance of people to where most of the time five or 10 workers are idle, it's inefficient. So the thing is, if you increase the labor costs of an additional person, then you need to straddle the line of efficiency or else you're burning a lot more money. So, so you can think of this also in terms of cashiers at McDonald's. If you walk into McDonald's, see it's jam-packed and there's one cashier, you'll turn around and leave and you'll go across the street to Wendy's. Um, or or you'll, you would have gone to Wendy's in the first place because it's better. Um, but but that, that's really not the point. Um, so, so, so the point is there are all these complex situations that arise in a lot of labor situations where there are maximizing problems that are kind of like invisible, they're lurking in the background, and it decides how many people you have staff a place given their function and their utility. And it's not easily predictable, and it's not just saying, well, I know this place is profitable so they can afford to pay more. It's, it's you've now changed the equation of how they can best make money. So they're going to respond in that way. So now if you create an incentive for them to have seven people at a call center instead of ten, then once three people quit, they're just going to decide not to rehire three more people. They're going to say, well, actually, th th this has changed. And if people think, well, businesses aren't that complex because I've had a bad manager, I, I, I think that that's just a lack of, I guess, imagination or lack of understanding of how much some people strive to maximize their company's performance. And a lot of companies do not optimize their, their performance, but, but sometimes they're just strikingly obvious situations where you're like, well, now it'd be stupid for us to hire a person back because we're paying so much more in labor costs and we don't really need a new person there. So, so we'll leave that role vacant. So, and then the people who are left out in the dark, as, as that article by Jason Riley suggests, is the people who are the lowest skilled and the lowest educated. And then, then to touch on one, one more thing, it's the high school workers. It's the people who don't have a resume that are 16 and they're, they're saying, take a chance on me. You know, tr I want to get in the door and I want to be pretty much, uh, I pretty much want to shadow somebody for a while and then maybe start doing valuable work a few months down the road and maybe in a couple years. But I just want something on my resume. I remember when I was in high school, I got a job that paid me $10 an hour and I was on top of the world because I made more than minimum wage and I thought it was a lot of money. And I would have happily, when I was 16, worked for $7 an hour. I was just trying to get a job and the one that gave me a job happened to pay $10 an hour. Um, but there are people who aren't going to be able to find a job at all and they'll be happy to work for $10 an hour, but the minimum wage is going to be $15 an hour. And this comes down to the core criticism that I have, and, and I, I'm done going through these articles, so now I'm just going to speak about so, so some more arguments that I have against minimum wage. But the minimum wage is criminalizing nonviolent action. The minimum wage is saying you don't have the right to agree to labor at a price that you're willing to sell your labor for because the government says so. It's like, oh, you're willing to do a project for somebody that will take 20 hours, and they'll give you 100 bucks for it, and you're happy to do that project. Well, that's $5 an hour. You can't do that. That's criminal activity. Now, now, fortunately, a lot of things you can just not report to the government and they won't follow up on it, especially when it comes to things that are more 
contract-based and are more one-off-based. But if you're doing labor that's below the federal minimum wage, that's illegal. People can get fined for it. People can get warned by it. People's jurisdictions can crack down on them for it. And in in the end, what happens when government policy... Every government policy is backed by a loaded gun because if you resist their, their, their continued incursions and you don't pay their fines and you say, I don't care about your regulations, they eventually come with cops and guns. So anything about federal um, minimum wage legislation is criminalizing your right to make your own business dealings that you consented to. If you don't want to work for $7 an hour, you don't have to. If you don't want to work for $25 an hour, you don't have to. You can turn down any job. But the thing is, when they price people out, they're making that person's livelihood illegal because they, they can't, they, they, they aren't qualified for jobs that pay that amount. And now you've made all the other ones go underground or not exist anymore because you're not going to be able to find a job when you're looking through Indeed, like the, the amount of jobs open will, will be significantly less. And then once you get in the door and they realize you don't provide $15 worth of output, you're now a cost to that company. You're not just an employee. And before you could have been a, a, a surplus and now you're, you're not. So it ends up hurting them the most, and it's an infringement on just peaceful, con- consensual interactions, and it criminalizes it. And in the end, it screws over the least educated people the most, and the youngest people the most. And you can't get started on your resume now until you're pretty much in college looking for internships, and then the internship has the miracle zero dollars an hour that they're allowed to pay you. Um, and I'm, I haven't heard much on this bill, but I don't think this bill outlaws the 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 you know, the, the exception at $0 an hour. If it's an unpaid internship, it's okay. But a lot of these kids would be able to find way more jobs from an earlier point if you could just be more flexible with the wage rate. And then they say things like, well, not all the people who are on minimum wage are 16-year-olds. Well, 5% were single mothers. It's like I understand wanting single mothers to not make $7 an hour. But the thing is, once you do this one-size-fits-all federal policy, not only are you screwing over people who just aren't capable of getting a job that pays them more, but you're also taking all these places that have far, far lower standards of living, and you're applying this federal rule that is much higher than than their um, fair costs. And that's going to have drastic effects if you if you raise their wages by 50%. That's going to affect all kinds of businesses, all kinds of wages, and it's going to it's going to cause inflation, and it's going to lead to lead to a lot of people losing their jobs. And what I resent most about the arguments in favor of this minimum wage increase is that they talk about, on average, poverty will decrease, but then they don't truly recognize what the effects of 1.4 million people losing their jobs is. When you take somebody's job away and and they're a low-skilled worker and you've now raised the price of low-skilled labor unilaterally, it's going to be hard for them to find another job. It's it's hard to think of it as anything other than them destroying those people's livelihoods and then kind of saying whatever the government will take care of them, and I I, I think that, that that's where my um my my, my disagreement turns into um j- just uh, I I don't want to say anything too brutal but 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 it's what makes these people kind of uh, abhorrent or disgusting. It's like you guys are willing to pick winners and losers that lead to drastic consequences on people's lives. And in the end, you kind of shrug your shoulders and say, that's how it plays out. The ends justify the means. And you know what? It doesn't. Because cause even the end is 1 million, 1.4 million people um, they, uh, pretty much losing their jobs and maybe not being able to find another job. And that, that's, that's not something you should be okay with. And, and even, if it's something, even if you say, well, that's the trade-off I'm willing to make. You're not willing to make it, but I am. Well, you have to understand that when you're, you're 
not just making that trade-off. You're not just choosing it. You're not preferring it. You're taking it and you're enforcing it on people with violence, right? You're unilaterally taking it. Um, you're going to make it the rule. You're going to make it the law. And if people don't agree to, um, that that law is legitimate, then you're going to use violence to crack down on them. So it's not just a matter of preference and agree to disagree. It's it's you guys want to dominate everybody. You want to enforce this is the law of the land, and people are going to get disenfranchised. And you know, whatever it, you got to crack a few eggs, and that's that's really dehumanizing. And for for people who stand for the voiceless, um, completely dehumanizing the 1.4 million people that will lose their job, it, it just it just shows a level of hypocrisy that I, I guess at this point you should expect. But it's it, it's just why I don't really take them as a as genuine actors at all times, because they're 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 essentially dodging that that part of the question. Um, so th so that's why I think people should think about when they think of the issues. Um, I ran through a lot there. Obviously, what I harkened on at the end there has been my I guess strong feelings on the issue for a few years now. So I, I can confidently say all, all those things about how it um, screws over certain groups of people the most. Um, but, but I do think the other things I mentioned were, 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 are worth recognizing. So a quick recap is you should note that big businesses are already raising their minimum wages and they're lobbying for the bills. So, you know, that, that, that says something. So maybe that, that should be put into consideration. You have to be concerned about inflation to some extent, um, increase the federal debt, automation, um, and then to... Uh, and then just uh, the, 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 we have the direct example of Kroger laying people off when they had to increase hazard pay. And um, yeah, I, 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 th I think that's everything I really want to t touch on. Well, and it's just the basic bodily autonomy, the, 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 the basic freedom of association to if you consent to a certain wage, you should be allowed to work at that certain wage. And the, the fact the government owns you and thinks they can, you know, void any contract unilaterally because it doesn't meet their regulations is just ridiculous. And it's a, it's a disrespect to anybody who wants to make one of those contracts. Okay. So I hope you guys appreciated that. Um, I, I know that was kind of re really off the walls. I shuffled through a lot of papers there. I, I had read through them all before I went on air, um, and I had made a lot of highlighted notes. But when you got like 10 articles all poorly folded it physically in front of you and you're, you're flipping through, you, you can kind of lose track of things. So I hope I did a good job make, making sense there. Um, if you found this interesting, please check out future episodes in the backlog. Um, you can find me on Twitter at The Obey Podcast. And you can also check out another podcast I'm on called Beyond Talking Points. You can check out that podcast feed. It's where I, um, who I, and I identify as an anarcho-capitalist, I, I talk about a lot of political issues and philosophical issues with somebody who cons who considers themselves. Um, uh, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything too. Um, I, I don't want to simplify too much. But but he is some sort of I guess leftist. Um, he he he's you know he's he he could be called like a libertarian a libertarian leftist it, you know all, all that fun stuff so so imagine the uh, imagine how critical i was about dehumanizing on the left and government there and then me having a conversation with somebody who supports bernie sanders agenda you can find that uh, that type of content on the beyond talking points feed um so i hope you guys enjoyed and uh tune in tomorrow for more content thank you if you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash obey podcast.
or on Twitter at The Obey Podcast. Until next time. Next time.